Welcome to If the Walls Could Talk, a series of conversations about smart buildings connecting key thinkers in the property world with each other and with you. I'm Jules Barker, Global Director of Product at WideScore, the certification company dedicated to making the world's buildings smarter and better connected. We've been talking to a wide range of experts covering topics such as the best way to implement technology, what a smart building is, and about sustainability. And in this episode particularly, we're going to talk about the importance of user-first design. And we're speaking with Dan Drogman, CEO of Smart Spaces, who has helped some of the biggest property firms in the world establish the future of workspaces. Dan, thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome. Good to see you again. Tell us a bit more about Smart Spaces and, and the suite of offering that you have. No, certainly. So Smart Spaces is a smart building operating system. Uh, and what that means is that it takes all the base build systems, so your access control, your lighting control, your CCTV, your HVAC, BMS and EMS, plus IoT sensors, Internet of Things, so your IAQ, your indoor air quality, and brings it onto a common platform. And this common platform is secured with an API and a roles-based permissions manager, which means that the landlord can delegate spaces to the tenant. So if you lease the full floor, you get all the components that are within your lease and you can access, you can monitor them, you can control them from an app, you can control them from a web portal and you can view the analytics. So we're very much a smart building platform that enables that, but then we provide that product to the end user. So that's the app, the Apple Watch or the Alexa. In a previous episode, we talked to Annie Pantelli of AXA about her iconic 22 Bishopsgate. And I know that's a building that you have done more than many people to make smart. Tell us a little bit about that building. It's a really interesting project. Uh, we, we actually, funny enough, won the project by uh, hounding uh, Danny at Lipton Rogers, um, who was responsible for the uh, M&E design for the building. And uh, yeah, we, we sent him a deck of all the great stuff we could do and said that, you know, you can't go out into the market and say you've got the smartest building without our tech. And uh, he actually welcomed us in for an uh, introductory meeting. And I think actually he was impressed with the work we've been doing for uh, Great Portland Estates at the time. And uh, he asked us to take him around a few buildings. And one of the great things about the 22 team, they were just really open-minded from the outset. And uh, that went as far as going to say that this would be an app-first building, so there'd be no plastic cards. Uh, and that's led to a point where at present, we've got 4,500 active users uh, using the, the 22 Bishopsgate app. Um, and what does a building need to do to be smart, in your opinion? So actually, this is a really interesting question because uh, a, a lot of people would criticise us and say that you know an app doesn't make a building smart. And we totally agree with them, actually. It doesn't. It is the platform. It's the joint up approach and I think where 22 really stands out is that we've developed this platform for all the occupiers it's the 22 Bishopsgate app and it's how they access all these services access the building booking visitors and then the tenants have been able to build on top of this platform so if you're a large-scale or international um, business and you've got a strong brand and you want to put that at the forefront you can actually have your own app your own Beasley app for instance where we've created their global workplace app this has all the access to the the services provided by JLL and AXA, but also has services private to them, which includes single sign-on, access to their intranet, room booking, occupancy sensors, and indoor air quality monitoring. And so to me, smart is that platform, that enablement, which enables tenants to take the systems and customize them rather than just having to take what the landlord sort of second guess their requirements to be. And so talking about the systems and customizing them, in my intro, I talked about user stories. How do you prioritize um, which user stories, which systems uh, 
to bring online first or which to which to deprioritize? No, certainly. I think it, it is looking at what is the most stickiness for the platform. So um, how can we help the user the most? So in your day-to-day life, uh, a term has been coined previously by James Pellet of GPE is the toothbrush effect. And that's around, you know, that stickiness of you having to use an app twice a day. And then all the supplementary services get far greater engagement. And so the entry experience was definitely the starting point. Um, we also liked Axe's approach, which was, start small and then add to it. So we could make sure that we completely mastered that arrival experience before moving on to the room booking, the food ordering and the indoor air quality monitoring. And how important is it to measure those outcomes or, or do you predict them in advance and go with it? Every di- building's different. Every sort of user experience is different. The reception, the lifts, everything that sort of adds up to that arrival experience. And so we measure that and we see how long does it take for the smartphone to unlock the door? How do we improve that? What's the, the range and distance? How many people are using it? How many visitors have to go to reception because their QR code, ha- they couldn't get it to read on the readle? We're constantly measuring those statistics to make sure we can improve and we do a release every two weeks. So every two weeks we're rolling out an update to the app that will have a slight improvement, um, which you don't always recognize instantly, but actually it's in the background and it might have just shaved a a split second off of that um, process of unlocking a door, but it's all adding up to making people using the app more and engaging with the platform. So making outcomes come to life as a dance for two, it's not just the well-designed, the effective solutions that are important, but you also need people to buy in and actually use Uh, the app as intended. What do you do during the design phase to make sure you're building solutions that people will actually want to use? I suppose it's understanding uh, the day-to-day user experience and making sure it's better than what's already existing. It's not an app for app's sake. You know, if a a plastic card, for instance, is faster at unlocking a door, we need to resolve that and make sure that the app's faster to make make it worthwhile. You know, you're not going to use this technology for the sake of using it. It's got to have a, a marked improvement. And what do you do to help make sure people do understand how to use the app? So we have an introductory film. So when you first load the app, and I think one of the best um, reasons for deploying the app is how it streamlines processes. So if you think about 22 Bishopsgate, 10,000 active users excluding visitors, that's a lot of people to queue up at the security office to have their photo taken and have a plastic card issued to them, which they lose a couple of weeks later. Especially now we've got this new hybrid working, we're finding that those plastic passes in our legacy buildings are being lost more than ever. And that's actually ended up being a great attribute for the app because we're replacing them uh, with app users. Also, it then starts that stickiness from day one because someone's got it on their phone before they arrive and they can unlock. And then from then on, they never think of using anything else to engage with the building. And so you've talked about a few different user groups there. You've talked about the person downloading the app. You've talked about JLL managing the building. You've talked about AXA owning and developing the building. Um, When you're thinking about the user stories for each of those different user groups, how do you prioritise between those different groups? I would always prioritise the customer, the end customer, and that to us is the uh, user of the building. Um, We're providing this software for the building user, the people that have leased the building and need to be as productive as possible in the building. So that always overrides everything we do. Um, So, you know, that sometimes means that we have to have an awkward conversation with the client where we say, look, you might want to do this, but based on the data we have today, we think that's a bad idea. And when we've got the data, we never really have an argument. They say, actually, fine, this is a great idea and let's go forward. Um, So that doesn't happen very often. But yes, we've always got the end user of the building as our uh, number one 
priority. And so how do you manage to persuade the landlord or the operator to buy your product if you're selling something that is for someone else's benefit? You're presumably not just appealing to that altruism. I think it's because we are both trying to do the same thing. And that's, you know, it's a competitive property market. You know, leases are getting shorter and shorter. That means you've got to have a product that's been is more relevant than ever. And so I think if we're relevant to their end user, our goal is aligned and uh, it's creating that stickiness. Um, so we're never going to offer something that's controversial um, to, to the landlord, but something that's going to help their person, their tenants stay there for longer, stay in the building for longer. And what does success look like in a smart building? How do you know when you've delivered a great outcome? I think it's when there's a marked improvement in the productivity of, of the building tenants and occupiers. So that could be shorter queues in the marketplace. So that's the, the place where you have your lunch. If you can avoid queuing using our pre-ordering feature, that's if um, more meeting room spaces are being made available by releasing the bookings using the occupancy sensors. That's marked uh, down with actually people staying in the offices longer when we have better air quality that's measured by our air quality sensors. Productivity is a really, really difficult topic, isn't it? Because there, presumably there's also things like um, the quality of decisions being made. There's the, the quality of financial outcomes for the companies there. But um, there's a lot you can dig into with productivity. How far do you go down that line? Yeah, we, we don't take too much, like we don't have knowledge about the day-to-day -day decisions that, that the business takers take. But what we do have is um, knowledge of, about how they use the space. So the occupancy sensors we have in the space will show how efficient the space is used. And I think that if people are coming in, you know, getting a productive eight hours work, um, we know that we're providing that a, a great space for them to work in. Otherwise, they wouldn't stay there and they would move around a lot. And you'd also see whether a particular uh, furniture layout works. And you might see that one team requires more space and you can actually get that provisioned before they raise an internal request purely based on the metrics we get on the occupancy analytics. Do you have any examples of where you haven't done so well, where someone hasn't used a feature that you launched or in the way you expected? And what did you do about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think what we've found is that if you don't have that toothbrush effect in place, so you don't have a bookable facility, something that's transactional, so you don't have the pre-ordering, it's a pure, pure, just community-led app you'll never ever get the adoption of the number of users you'd get in a building that does have the toothbrush effect. So it sounds like you're saying that an app alone doesn't make a smart building and you actually need the infrastructure in place to enable the integration into that building for it to be a meaningful quality for the user. 100%, yeah, precisely. That's exactly it. And, and the, the key is that we are providing a platform. So our smart building OS sits above all those base build systems, so access control, lighting control, HVAC and climate, energy, IoT, and then the bookable facilities, and then provides that in a common dashboard. So you've got all the analytics that you can understand how effective the space is being used. And then you have an app, you can have an Alexa, you can have an Apple Watch. They're just components. So definitely an app alone does not make a building smart. It's all about the complete package. Speaking to the landlords out there that aren't on the verge of a major development or a huge refurbishment, what can they do to make their building smart? So retrofit is becoming more and more achievable. And I think that's largely down to, you know, there's a lot far more buildings that have already been developed and completed than they are in the pipeline. And so 
our clients where we have a, a portfolio play, we've gone back retrospectively and uh, we've started to become really good at navigating um, the upgrades that are required to get um, the stickiness. And that could be uh, some BMS upgrades, which can sometimes just be licensing. So it's a really easy retrofit. And also you've got to think that like the battery powered IoT technologies like LoRaWAN, um, they've got eight year battery life um, and are completely wireless. So there's no infrastructure. So it's a no brainer to, to retrofit these devices into legacy real estate. If there was one piece of advice you could give to a landlord or a developer around smart, what would that be? I would say that it's not as expensive as you think it is. So I think there's a lot of landlords putting it off, um, petrified that it's going to cost them millions and millions of pounds, and maybe even be dubious on, on the, the benefits it's going to bring. And I'd say give it a try because it's not as expensive and the benefits are unreal. Dan, can you tell me about how you have interacted with SmartScore in the past and and where you found it useful. No, definitely. We're, we're, well, we've got the world's first platinum, which is an amazing accolade. So that was the Hickman building for Great Portland States. And uh, I think why, why we welcome SmartScore so much and we're great advocates of SmartScore is that, you know, we have been preaching about this technology to our clients, um, but there was never a way to grade the effectiveness uh, and the outcomes. And I think now we have SmartScore in place, you know, it, it shows, showcases all the hard work we've been doing for the last five years. Uh, and, and, and it greater gives educates the client to understand it. And how important do you think communication is between different um, counterparties? So I'm thinking here that it's not so much that your systems need to talk to each other, because of course they do, but different providers within a, a building space, I've found often struggle to communicate. No, definitely. I, I think that's where we've come into the market is that Previously, a lot of smart building projects have tried to get companies that have their own agenda to work together, and no one's really taken responsibility or ownership of the whole process. And so, because we are delivering the, the product that's in the hands of the occupier, it's tangible, we become responsible to make sure that these parties are collaborating. And so, if there's any gaps, you know, if the lighting control company hasn't provided information to the BMS company and there's an integration there, we will oversee and manage that to make it effective. And I think it's that ownership piece that's been missing today and I think SmartScore further helps with that by identifying to all parties how much their contribution matters. Dan, you've made smart buildings all around the world. Tell us how it differs in different countries. It doesn't differ too much. Um, so what we've found is that the requirements uh, we have around the building systems are largely the same. I suppose in some countries there's data restrictions, so we might have to store things on premise. But really, it's been through the cloud. And so we haven't had the opportunity to go to these buildings. We've just delivered this all remotely, uh, which is a bit of a shame, but also incredibly efficient and helping with our global expansion. Thanks, Dan. So that's been absolutely brilliant. I think my key learning from this is that a, an app does not make a smart building, but you need much more than that. Thank you so much for everything. Thanks, Jules. Cheers. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to If the Walls Could Talk using your usual podcast provider. Thanks for listening. <laughs>